This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today, this is a podcast about something that I have just delayed and delayed and delayed, and not for, you know, no good reason, but I've been wanting to do a podcast on the importance of Robbie Zacharias for a very long time. It's something that I was even planning on doing before he passed away on May 19th of this year, but yes, this is a rest in peace memorial podcast to Robbie Zacharias that is taking place months and months and months after he actually passed away. Uh, a lot of things happened this summer. Don't know if you were paying attention, and a lot of things have happened in the run-up to the election, and so... The timing for this podcast just always seemed like, oh, I can put that off another month. Oh, I can put that off another three weeks. And then here we are in December and I'm just now getting to it. But yes, he died on May 19th of this year at 74 years of age uh, after a battle with a very rare form of cancer. And if you're not familiar with the name Ravi Zacharias, uh, you really should be, especially if you're a listener of this podcast. He is one of the foremost modern apologists that we've really ever had. This is a guy that spent, I think, over 50 years as an apologist, as a traveling speaker. Um, And he is an apologist that used reason-based arguments for faith, okay? And the reason why I think a lot of people were drawn to him is because he leaned on Scripture, but he didn't only lean on Scripture. I know that seems like a crazy thing to say, especially if, if you're a Christian and you believe that the Bible is the Word of God and, and you know that it's imbued with all, the, all this truth and foresight. But there are a lot of people that think the Bible is nonsense. They think it's not worth the paper that it's printed on. And so just to get into those people's brains, to, to get them to even listen to the message— you can't always come to it from a scriptural point of view because they don't agree with how you look at the scriptures. And so you need to come at those people in a different way. And a lot of people like to use reason. And one of the reasons for that, no pun intended, is because of the work done by Ravi Zacharias. And so what today's podcast is going to be is I'm going to go through the three things, the top three things that I've learned from Ravi Zacharias's teachings. Okay. And these are kind of larger worldview type things. They're incredibly uh, dense topics. And these are topics that I've heard him talk about over and over and over. And that's kind of the only reason why they've landed with me because they are very heady and I just didn't get them the first time I listened to him. But I'm going to be putting in clips of uh, some times where he's explaining these three things. And so you're going to get a little bit of me and you're going to get a lot of Ravi in this episode. And guys, if you stick with me until the end of this episode, I will give you my thoughts on the recent controversy surrounding Ravi Zacharias. So there's been some allegations that have come out about him and his behavior, uh, but this has all come out after he has passed away. And so we will take ample time to address that because now you can't address Ravi Zacharias without also addressing these concerns or these allegations. So we'll certainly get into that. But before I get into the top three things that I've learned from Ravi Zacharias, I remember first hearing his name. This would have been maybe uh, five or six years ago. He actually came to Edmond, Oklahoma to do a talk at Oklahoma Christian University. And someone's like, hey, are you going to go see Ravi at Oklahoma Christian University? And I was like, well, I don't know who that is. He's like, oh my gosh, he's like the greatest. You should read his books. She's listening to his podcast. You know, his speeches are amazing, blah, 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 blah. By the time I even really thought about, uh, you know, let me look into this guy. Let me see if it's even worth it to try to go. The thing had sold out, right? So whatever, however many seats they had at this event, it was completely sold out. And it's kind of one of those things now. It's like when a band comes through town, you're like, oh, I'll just catch them the next time they come through and then they pass away or, you know, they break up or, or something like that happens. The band is no more. That's kind of how I feel like right now with Ravi Zacharias is I never got to see him speak live. Uh, the one thing that I do find pretty interesting is I did find his podcast. It's the Just Thinking podcast. It's a daily podcast that's kind of broken down into, you know, little 12, 13 minute chunks of his speeches or his Q&As or something like that. It's funny whenever I watch a video of Ravi, 
And because I've listened to him at two times speed so much with my podcast that whenever he's talking in front of a group of people, he's way more deliberate, obviously, in in the way that he talks. He's deliberate in the things that he says uh, in his vocal pauses and things like that. But basically, over the last several years, Ravi Zacharias has been one of the most important people in terms of informing some of the things that I think about and how I would go about defending the faith to someone who is a non-believer. So I, I've been tremendously influenced by Albert Moeller. I've been tremendously influenced at different times by the ministries of people like Andy Stanley or Jeff Durbin or Matt Chandler or, you know, just different folks like that that I've brought in at different points. But a lot of those people don't really get into the apologetics side of things. And some of them, especially Jeff Durbin, they, they kind of have issues with the apologetic approach that doesn't use scripture for every single argument in every single form of argumentation. And so for Ravi Zacharias, uh, he, he's been such an important role in my life and he's been in my ear for just hours and hours and hours. And he's really formulated the way that I see the world. And so um, the top three things that I'm going to be talking about today in terms of what I've learned from Ravi are these. Number one is that every worldview has to answer four questions. So we'll get into that. The second is explaining the existence of the moral law giver philosophically. And then the third thing is the supreme ethic. Okay, so every worldview has to answer four questions, explaining the existence of a moral law giver philosophically and the supreme ethic. So we're going to get into the first one right here, and I'm going to display a clip for you. And with some of these clips, um, you know, I know that there's some laws around, you know, common usage of different clips and links and things like that. So some of these the clips are going to be a little bit shorter. I think one of them is going to be a little bit longer. I'm not exactly sure all the parameters here. So if this becomes an issue later, I apologize in advance and I will make the adjustments. But again, I'm trying to uh, pay homage and honor Ravi Zacharias and RZIM. That's Ravi Zacharias International Ministries with this, but also to bless all of you listening to this. So I feel like we've taken enough time doing the intro. So let's go ahead and get into the first thing that I feel like I've learned and taken away from Ravi Zacharias's teachings. And that, that is that every worldview has to answer four questions. And so here we go into a clip where Ravi explains that. We use the term worldview a lot in this series. What is a worldview? You know, the interesting thing is uh, one day I was going to speak on the subject in Hong Kong. And as I stood up to speak, one of the lenses of my glasses fell off. I was to read a text. And there I was looking at a pair of glasses with one lens that worked and there was no lens on the other side and everything was distorted, which was ironic because I was going to talk about a worldview in a sense as the lens through which you ultimately look at reality. And uh, as we've dealt with the four issues of origin, meaning, morality and destiny, those are the particular questions that have to be answered. And when they are put together, they form your worldview. So a worldview is a set of assumptions or assertions you have made through which you look at every choice and every decision that ultimately comes in life to shape, especially your values and your spiritual commitments that are made in your day-to-day living. It is a critical thing, and the problem is some people don't realize that they have a worldview. C.S. Lewis said about apologetics, the question is not whether you do apologetics or not. The only question is whether you have what you already do in apologetics is good or not. And that's also the case of a worldview. It's not whether you have a worldview or not. It's a case of whether the one you do have is a truthful worldview or a false one. Something that important has to be tested. So how do we do that? It absolutely has to be tested. And there are two or three things I can say here. The classical way of testing a worldview involves three steps. 
logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. What does that mean? Your answers have to be logically consistent. They have to be empirically adequate, meaning you're able to verify them in situations like the resurrection from the dead, like the archaeological claims of the Bible, like the historicity of the Bible. So that is the empirical uh, component in it. And then experiential relevance, that all of this is also relevant to your life, not just some kind of uh, an abstract uh, argument that you give to things. Now, there are two ultimate tests, correspondence and coherence. To particular questions, your answers must correspond to reality. Meaning by that, if you say, I came here in a red car and it's parked right in front of the building, that is a correspondence test I will put. I can walk out of here and see if that red car is actually there or you're spinning some kind of a line to me on that. Now, if you're in a courtroom and you say, I didn't commit that murder, maybe you're telling the truth, but that does not mean you have no implications in it. How will the attorney find out whether you are completely telling the truth or not? They will take all of your answers, put them together, and make sure they are coherent. So there's correspondence and coherence. Let me say something very important that is easily forgotten. Sometimes worldviews are systemically false. The system itself is flawed. And you don't have to examine all of the details to know the worldview is flawed. You can see that something central to it is a flaw. For example, the Quran says Jesus never really died on the cross. It only appeared to the people that he died. Jewish historians, pagan historians, Greek historians, Roman historians, Christian historians all say that he died on the cross. So when a particular book can make an assertion like that, that is false you immediately know there's something in that book and that worldview that could be systemically flawed because it denies the very death of Jesus Christ, which is intrinsic to the Christian faith. So going back, logical consistency, empirical adequacy, experiential relevance, correspondence to truth in particular statements, coherence as a whole worldview. And if you notice a systemic flaw, there are danger signs of the rest of the worldview. That's what I like about the Christian faith corresponds to reality, it coheres as a worldview, it's logically consistent, I can test it out, and it brings relevance to your life in all of the most vital pursuits that you and I engage in. That's what makes Christianity not just an end-time thing, it makes it relevant for the now. So there you go, guys. That's fairly dense. I realize that, especially if you don't spend a lot of time digging into philosophy, or you don't really have a history in that. But that is something that I've heard him talk about a lot. So if you listen to his podcast, if you watch any of his YouTube videos or anything that RZIM puts out, he talks about this a lot. Um, and so when you get into the correspondence and coherence theories, now we're really getting into the world of philosophy. And then you get into how that breaks down with logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. I think he did a great job of explaining that, re-explaining that, and then driving it home. But the big one that I wanted to point to, because this is one I feel like is easily digestible and easy enough to bring up in a discussion or a debate with somebody, and that's origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Okay? Every worldview has to have an answer for those four questions, every single one of them. And so if you're talking to somebody that is a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or uh, something else, they have to answer those questions. Origin, where did we all come from? Like, how did, how did we get here? Okay. Meaning, why are we here? Like, what, what is the purpose in all of this? The third, morality. How do we know what's right and what's wrong? Where does that come from? 
And then destiny. Where do we go when we die? Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And some people and some of their worldviews, because if you talk to, you know, a very astute atheist or uh, someone who believes that we're just human, uh, it's a humanist and that we're all just, you know, biological entities, you know, eventually our ancestors were slime and then they were bugs and then they were something else. Essentially, you can probably get past origin, meaning, morality and destiny. You can probably decently work your way around that. But then your worldview also has to correspond with reality and be coherent. And it has to do so with logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. And if you listen to a lot of Ravi Zacharias's speeches or talks, I feel like he does a pretty good job of being fair to the worldviews that try to work their way through that matrix. And the problem for a lot of those worldviews is they fall apart. You, you saw him use an example with Islam. And again, they are the only major world religion that doesn't believe that Jesus was a real person that died on a Roman cross. That's about as verifiable of a historical fact as anything from antiquity. But the Christian worldview does have a great answer for all of those things listed. And so I felt like that's at the very least a very good conversation starter because you can memorize origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You can definitely keep that with you to where you can pull it out whenever it's necessary. And when you're having a discussion over a whiskey or two or something like that, and someone can't give you an answer to one of those four things, you don't necessarily need to send them on to the correspondence or coherence theories. Like you're going to stop way short of logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance, but it does at least get you into that conversation. So that's the first thing uh, that every worldview has to answer those four questions, the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And the second big thing that I've learned from Ravi Zacharias and his lessons and his teachings is explaining the existence of a moral law giver philosophically. And this does have some, you know, attachments to the first thing that we've talked about, but let's go to Ravi explaining how you can prove the existence of a moral law giver philosophically. Philosophically, it's often, of course, put in tandem with evil. Suffering, evil, suffering, evil. Why does God even allow evil? And I've often responded that it's very critical to understand the nature of the question. Because when we say there's evil, we assume there's good. When we say there's good, we assume there's a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. When we assume a moral law, we assume a moral law giver. Because without the moral law giver, there's no moral law. Without the moral law, there's no good. Without good, there's no evil. The question actually ends up uh, hoisting itself on its own petard, as it were. It doesn't know how to defend itself. But here's the killer point of that argument. Somebody may say, why do you need a moral law giver to have a moral law? And the answer is very clear in this. Every question raised about evil and suffering is either raised by a person or about a person which means personal worth is essential to the question. Intrinsic worth is essential to the question. And in a naturalistic framework, you cannot have intrinsic intrinsic worth. You've got extrinsic worth. It's conveyed to you. You're just a, a radar blip on the radar screen of time. You just happen to be here. But if you're a person created in the image of God with intrinsic worth, then the question indeed is reflective of the value that you give to personhood. So two things, the reality of good and the intrinsic worth of a person are essential to the question. If the question is to be untaken, seriously those two assumptions need to be made which the christian makes so of all the things that ravi zacharias has done that little section right there what was that a 90 seconds worth of audio there's so much in that 
if I had to rank rank order everything that I feel like I've learned for Ravi, that's probably the number one thing. The reason why I didn't go with that first is because, you know, origin, meaning, morality, destiny, and all the stuff underneath it, that's probably the most dense. So if you can get past that, you can get on to these next two. But explaining the moral lawgiver is very, very important because probably the number one pushback that you will get from people that are non-Christians as to why God could not exist or probably does not exist is be the problem of pain. You've heard people talk about the problem of pain a lot. How could a good God let bad things happen to good people? And you've heard that question asked in, in many different forms, but that's essentially the, the nexus, the, you know, that's the core of the question is how could a good God let bad things happen to good people? And then you can start saying, well, okay, what, what do you mean by bad? What do you mean by good? And automatically the answer to that question infuses some sort of a morality. And that morality came from somewhere. Now, some people might just say that, that it, we've evolved to be moral, right? You know, it's what's good for the goose is good for the gander, as it were, except the gander is actually monkeys in this argument uh, that people use. But at that point, you, you need somebody to basically establish where does morality come from? Because you can't say that something is good unless you know what bad is and vice versa, right? And you know how to differentiate between the two by having some sort of moral law. And this is where I used to get hung up. It's like, I was with you for the first three. It's like, okay, uh, in order to know what bad is, you have to know what good is. In order to know what g- the difference between good and bad is you've got to have a, a some sort of a moral law. But then I felt like there was a chasm between the moral law and saying that just because there is a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. Because at least on its face, at face value alone, you can say, all right, I, I can maybe buy that over millions and millions and millions of years, monkeys evolved to be nice to one another. You know, if I'm going to take on everything else along with that worldview, all the, the sheer craziness and, and the odds of getting a world that we have right now, I can probably push that out a little bit further and say, yeah, okay, I bet monkeys evolved to play nice. But there isn't as big of a gap as I originally thought, because the first several times I heard Ravi give that answer, he didn't give the last part about the moral law giver. Right. The reason why we can we can lean on that is because every time that question is brought up, it's brought up by a person or about a person. So personhood and the worth therein is important to the question, because otherwise the question does self-defeat, as he said, because if there is no moral law giver, then there is no moral law. Then you can't differentiate between good and evil. If you can't differentiate between good and evil, what is good and what is bad? We we don't have any idea. The question self-destructs. So that's one that if. This is not really landing automatically. I would highly encourage you to go back and re-listen to that clip right there to get a little bit more uh, of that and see if you can maybe, you know, I know it's kind of like the philosophy guys. I promise I'm not a philosopher. Like sometimes with philosophy, it's like grab, trying to grab a fistful of water. It's almost impossible. It seems impossible, but I feel like, especially with these first two things that I brought to you, that these are accessible. They, they may take you actually sitting down and writing down what he's saying, like not word for word, but writing down the, the larger points of what he's saying so that you could get it in your brain somehow, because I think especially these first two are incredibly, incredibly important. So again, we've gone over the fact that every worldview has to answer the four questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And the second one is explaining the existence of the moral law giver or of a moral law giver philosophically. And so the last thing I'm going to go over today, there's, I could have done dozens of things, but we got to, you know, stay within some sort of parameters here is the supreme ethic. And so I'm going to go ahead and play this clip for you. And I'm going to go ahead and let you know that I'm going to just play the entire thing. I'm not going to edit out the question because you can tell the guy that's asking this question. He's, he says he's going to play the devil's advocate, but you can even just tell by his posture. He's got his arms crossed. He's thinking he's got a zinger. 
And if any of you have listened to Robbie Zacharias for any length of time, again, this guy was on the road for over half a de- half a decade, I believe, or sorry, not half a decade, half a century, rather, half a decade is not that impressive, half a century, rather. And so there weren't a whole lot of questions that he hasn't been asked, right? And some questions might be asked with some different semantics and some different you know language being used, but they're fundamentally a lot of the exact same questions. But I just want to play this for you because he gets into what the supreme ethic is, and I just absolutely loved how he answered this question. So here we go. Uh, this question is for Rabbi. Um, you mentioned the story of, of that, uh, I think you said he was Jewish and he was shot by uh, at that I, I think it was a concentration camp or something like that and I'm gonna play the devil's advocate for a bit and pretend I'm Sam Harris no pun intended of course um, you stated that God was watching God watched the gentleman pull the trigger if God was watching why didn't he make that trigger not work why didn't he make that poor individual just pass out while he was digging the grave Uh, I believe Sam Harris would ask that type of question and demand an answer. Yes, I appreciate that question. Um, Playing the devil's advocate, you said that why didn't God keep the man from pulling the trigger rather than allowing the man to pull the trigger and then watch over him and uh, bringing about some kind of judgment? I would say this to you, that the supreme ethic that God has given to us is the ethic of love. It is the peak of all intellectual and emotional alignment. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person of worth and as something to be protected. It was interesting of all people, it was Oscar Wilde, who on his deathbed in his 40s, by his lover by his side, Robbie Ross, he turned to Robbie and he said, did you love any one of those little boys for their own sake? It was an incredible question to ask by a man who was a hedonist on his deathbed in his 40s. And he said, Robbie, did you ever love any one of those little boys for their own sake? And Robbie Ross said, no, I can't say I did. He said, bring me a minister. Bring me a minister. And it was in his magnificent poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, that Oscar Wilde said, only Christ was big enough to cleanse his heart and forgive him for all that he had done. The point even the hedonist realized was that in pleasure also, value and love are the supreme ethics that can be treasured. But you can never have love without intrinsically weaving into it the freedom of the will. You cannot have love without the freedom of the will. If you are compelled by some machine to a certain decision, you can never love. You can comply, but you will never be choosing to express that sentiment and the reality of love. If love is a supreme ethic, and freedom is indispensable to love, and God's supreme goal for you and for me 
is that we will love him with all of our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. For him to violate our free will would be to violate that which is a necessary component so that love can flourish and love can be expressed. If you're asking for God to always stop the trigger, why not God stop everything else? Next time you hold a cup of boiling water, he makes it frozen water instead. Next time you're about to cross the street and you're going to be hit, he pulls your leg back. What you're asking for is a different entity than humanity. As wonderful as it may seem that in stopping that you think he is protecting you from that which is destructive, the greatest denial that you're asking for is the freedom of your will to be able to choose and to love God with all your heart and all your soul. When you've got love as the supreme ethic and the freedom of the will to choose that love, all of the other contingencies come in and can become explained why it is possible to either choose or to reject so that love can ultimately reign supreme. If you want compliance and, a and some kind of a mechanical response, your question itself will self-destruct. You're asking the question because you're free to ask it, and you're free to ask it because you're free to love. And when you love him, in spite of all of the contraries that you see around us, you're trusting him for having the supreme wisdom and the knowledge to ultimately bring a pattern out of it all. We think, for example, we know so much. The story is told in Mideastern folklore of this man who lost his horse that ran away. And when the horse ran away, the neighbor came to him and said, you know, bad luck, isn't it? Your horse is gone. He said, what do I know about these things? A few days later, the horse came back with 20 other wild horses. And the neighbor came and said, amazing. It's not bad luck. It's good luck. You've got 20 more. The man says, what do I know about these things? His young son is going and taming one of the new horses. That young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. The neighbor comes and says, terrible, isn't it? Your son's leg is broken. Bad luck that these horses came. The fellow says, what do I know about good luck and bad luck? A few days go by and a bunch of thugs are coming, looking for recruits to join their gang. And they're looking for all the able-bodied young men. And they're about to pick this young man, but find out his leg is broken. And they say, we don't want him. We're going to move on to the next house. So the man comes and says, good luck, isn't it? Your son's leg was broken. In one little series of episodes we don't know what lies ahead why don't you wait till you stand before God face to face and you will find out there were reasons why he didn't stop that trigger so that you will see the heinousness of evil and see the majesty of love and good managing to navigate yourself but the as a pilgrim's progress to come to the <laughs> celestial city so the supreme ethic and the supreme ethic is love Right. Not this kind of frou-frou love like junior high love, but like actual real love. And what this brings up as I was re-listening to this, because I've heard him give this answer a lot, um, is the C.S. Lewis quote in Mere Christianity, where he's basically talking about the type of worlds that God could have created and how useless it would have been to give personhood, to, to give his image to, to an image bearer that would be incapable of love. Because essentially... If you are creating a world where nothing ever goes wrong, where, where nothing ever goes not according to plan, you're basically building a, wor a world that is robotic, that is going to operate robotically. And I think the word that C.S. Lewis used in Mere Christianity is automatons. It's like, what, what good would it be to create humanity, which is basically automatons, where you're, you know, unless you're a Sam Harris type person and you do think we're basically automatons, we're just dancing to our DNA. I'm not sure if that's his quote or that came from one of the other four horsemen of new atheism. But essentially, that's, that's what we're looking at. The only world where love is possible 
is a world where we have free, free will. Because just think about it. You lovingly choose to, to love people in your life. You're making a conscious decision. For those of you who are married, you're, you're making a decision to love your spouse in a lot of ways. Like there's no such thing as falling in love because that, that, you know, implies there's some sort of an accident that happened. Like you trip fell and you landed in love. That, that's not really how this works. You're, you're choosing to do the things that help bring about love, that help foster love, that help grow love. And so I really liked his answer to this guy because I, I felt like the guy's question was fair, but I don't think he thought it was going to go in that direction. Because most of the people, and this really attaches to the previous thing that we talked about, you know, the problem of evil, right? You know, bad things happening, you know, bad things happening to good people. And, you know, I know what's good and bad, and that's bad. I can tell you that's bad. This extrapolates it out even one degree further in that when bad things happen, you know, just take your definition of bad, right? So we're not going to use a definitive moral law here, just your definition of bad. When you decree that something that's happened is bad, you're also assuming the judgment seat of God. And you're also assuming to have knowledge that you don't have. Because you hear about something bad that happens on the news, something bad happens to someone in your life, something bad happens to you, right? It comes right to your doorstep. And you feel like you're experiencing this and you know enough to say whether or not this is a good or a bad thing. But you don't have the requisite information to be able to make a call like that. Because you don't know what's coming down the road because of things that have happened. I mean, on last week's episode, when we were talking about suicide, when I was talking about the advice that I got from a counselor buddy of mine and how he said, you have no idea what the toughness you're going to be doing right now that you're developing right now, the resilience that you're building right now is going to be used for later. Because maybe you're really going through it. You know, 2020 hit you. You got sick. A family member may have passed away. You lost your business. You lost your job, something like that. But down the road, if you're able to get through this tough time, that toughness is going to be used for something. God's going to use that for something down the road. You just don't know yet because you don't have the knowledge. You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. You're not omni anything. You're just you. You're just a dude. And so I think it's important to think about those things through those lenses. And again, I would highly encourage you guys for any of these three questions or any of these three things that we went over, the first one being every worldview has to answer the four questions of life, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The second, explaining the existence of a moral law giver philosophically. And the third thing, the supreme ethic, which we found out was love. Go back and listen to those again. Because if you listen to his messages, if you go to his podcast, I'll have those links for you here at the end of this show, uh, in the show notes, you're going to get a lot of that but you may not get it every single time, but I've tried to distill everything that he produced into the most, if you're not going to become a Robbie Zacharias person, if you're not going to follow him and his ministry and do all those different things, these are the things that you can go away with. This is the spark notes. I'm giving you the spark notes on Robbie Zacharias. So I would highly encourage you to go back and look through those and, and develop through those uh, with me and with other friends of yours as well. Um, before we get out of here today, we obviously have to address the elephant in the room. For those of you who don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, you're, you're very likely not to have heard about what's going on here in the last month or so. But if you are a Ravi Zacharias person, even I hadn't even, as I was preparing this podcast, I was made aware that, that he had some allegations around him. So here's what I understand about what's happening currently with Ravi Zacharias. Again, he passed away in May, but a month or two ago, there were some women that came out that alleged sexual assault from Ravi Zacharias. 
Uh, I'm going to get most of the details correct. I'm going to do as much as I can to stay as close to the the facts that we know at the time. But uh, his ministry, RZIM, is based out of Atlanta. In that area, apparently he was a part owner of several massage parlors. And the allegations are that when he would come to the massage parlors two or three times a week to receive treatment, you know, massage treatment or whatever, that he would expose himself uh, to these women, that he would masturbate in front of them, that he would ask for things that went beyond a massage. Then there were even allegations that he had actually put his hands on women in a sexual manner, right? Felt them up, felt them up under their skirts or, you know, felt their butts or felt their boobs or whatever, that that's some of the things that he had done. There were allegations that there were women there that said, Hey, if he comes in again, I don't want to, you know, be in there. I don't want to be his masseuse because, you know, he's going to ask me to do these things. I'm not comfortable with it. You know, blah, 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 all these things. So that's the, that's the long and the short of what I understand on the sexual uh, assault allegations. There was also a sexting scandal that he was uh, a part of, but then, you know, there was a lawsuit that was settled out of court. I think this was back in 2016 or 2017. Uh, the, the details are very, very strange. Um, it, just as easily could be true as it could be that they were trying to extort uh, Ravi Zacharias. It's very hard to get a, a realistic read on that situation. But let's just say, you know, in a macro sense that there are allegations out there on him that are, you know, frankly, some of them are absolutely gross and crazy. Um, here, here's the thing with where I sit right now. So he's dead. And there's one party that's alleging that he did these things. The only evidence that they're presenting is is their word, which... Again, I, I, this is going to strike some of you as shocking, but I'm not a believe all women guy, you know, hashtag believe all women. I'm, I'm not a hashtag believe all anybody like by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. So we, we have people whose only evidence that they're bringing is their word, but here's the thing is their word might be correct. Like this may have happened and it may have not happened in the way that they described, but sort of happened or it could have not happened at all. And just to be frank with you. It would not surprise me one bit if something like this happened. And some of you are going to be like, Kyle, you spent a half hour going over how, how great you thought this guy was and everything like that. But the thing about me is I pretty much assume everybody, people that I don't know and people that I do know are capable of just about anything. You know, I know my wife more, better than I know anyone else on this planet. And so there would be certain things that she could do that would be absolutely shocking to me. But everyone else, even your best friend, you don't know your best friend as well as you think you do. You just don't. They're, they're capable of some insanely dark and depraved things, right? And some of you, I'm not having to convince you of this because you know this to be true. So there's not a person on the planet not an athlete that I'm a fan of, not a politician that I like, not a pastor that whose podcast I listen to, that I would be surprised that they would be capable of doing any type of a gross thing, whether it be cheating on their spouse, you know, feeling somebody up, rape, murder. Like there's not really anything that would absolutely shock me at this point, which I don't know what that says uh, about me or what that says about the people that I have an outlook on, but I just assume depravity in most situations. Okay. But at this point right now, RZIM is doing a supposedly independent investigation about these allegations. Now, I'm very cynical about the fact that they're going to be doing an honest investigation. And that's with no knowledge of the people running the investigation. I'm literally just making up a, a worldview based on this exact situation where I'm like, I'm not assuming they're not going to be saying that the namesake of their ministry, their international ministry, was doing sexual assault. Of, of people in the area of their ministry. 
I can't imagine that we're going to see that on the cover of Christianity Today's website or on the front page of their website where it basically says, you know, RZIM finds that Ravi Zacharias was a brutal rapist or, or something like that. I just, I can't imagine that happening because these people, they don't, the, like those people that work there, most of them aren't brands into of themselves. It's the fact that they have an attachment to Ravi Zacharias, the name Ravi Zacharias and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries that anyone is even listening to them. But here's the thing. These allegations might be true. These allegations might be false. There's only two ways it could go. They are either true or they are either false, right? I don't think that we're ever going to know for sure. Unless somebody can produce some sort of video evidence where we can see these things happening. And I know it's crazy. Like, oh, can you have video evidence of everything? This is inside a business. I can't uh, really imagine that they would have security cameras inside a massage room, but you would think maybe that there has been other sexual assault allegations at other facilities. So this is maybe a common practice. I really have no idea, but unless there's hard evidence presented of, of this type of a thing, I don't think that we can know for sure. So now I have to get into this whole part of the conversation where it's, do we throw the baby out with the bathwater? Because knowing what we know now, which is essentially that we probably will never know for sure. Are you willing to throw out all of the contributions that Ravi Zacharias has made to the Christian community, to Christianity in general, the kingdom of God, based on allegations that have been unsubstantiated or really in otherwise maybe aren't knowable as true or false? Are you willing to do that? I would suggest that you not do that because we don't know. But then I... I, I want to go even a step further there is let's say that we find out that these things were true. Let's say they do provide video evidence of he's of him doing these absolutely horrible, heinous and gross, sinful things. Those actions would not subsequently erase the contributions that he has made. Now, if he were alive, those actions and those sins should go. It shouldn't go unpunished. He should receive punishment and judgment for that on this planet. And then subsequently, as as he goes and meets his maker and makes his case essentially for for why he should get into heaven, right? Which again, guys, some of your heads just explode there. I'm not assuming that we just go up there and we start presenting our our case to God as if we're in court. But I think you understood the, the allegory I was trying to make there. But at the same time, even if these things were proven true, it doesn't make the things he said on stage any less useful for you. If you're thinking about going into apologetics, if you're thinking about going into the ministry, or if you're just thinking about being an intellectually sound Christian thinker, he's someone whose information you need to absorb. And this is where we kind of get into the macro conversation about canceling people after they passed away. Right. So yeah, people wanting to cancel Thomas Jefferson because he was a slave owner. Yeah. People wanted to cancel, you know, uh, Martin Luther because he was an angry person or just pick, pick someone from history by modern standards. We're not going to assume that that person is going to be able to check all the boxes. Certainly not all of the woke intersectional boxes. And I'm not saying that in past times, you know, sexual assault was just, you know, winked and nodded at. I'm sure it was to more, more so to a degree than it is now here in 2020. But at the same time, I think we have to be fair in our judgment of people and the things that they've been able to contribute. So I think if you're making a, this might seem like a weird example, but if you're making a Mount Rushmore of the game of baseball, the the people that you're probably going to have on there, you're probably going to have Babe Ruth. You're probably going to have Willie Mays. You're probably going to have Hank Aaron. And you're probably going to have a guy named Ty Cobb. 
If you don't know anything about Ty Cobb, he's legitimately one of the best baseball players all around ever in the history of the game. He was also a heinous individual, an absolutely reprehensible human being. There's even really good evidence that he murdered people, right? Like he was just a horrible, horrible human being. But that does not negate the contributions he made to the game of baseball. They're not going to lower his batting average because he wasn't a very nice person to women or really to anybody. And so when we bring that back to something like this with Ravi Zacharias, just because Christianity Today, just because this random website, just because this random YouTuber is trying to cancel Ravi Zacharias, you have to ask yourself, do they have the goods to prove that he should be canceled? Because if they don't have the evidence that these things ever happened, then they are simply allegations unsubstantiated allegations. You can make that about anybody. You could go over to your neighbor's house and claim, ah, you, uh, you light kittens on fire in your basement. Whether that's true or not, it's just an allegation. Anyone can make an allegation about anyone at any time for essentially any reason. That's essentially where we're at. But even if we do get the proof, does it negate all the things? Should we not listen to him? Should we not learn from those things because of his sins? I will say for me personally, you're going to have to deal with that one yourself. But for me personally, I'm not willing to do that. But I will log that away in my brain, understanding that if he's doing a lesson on sexual propriety or on sexual purity or any of those types of things, some of those things that he's saying needs to come with a grain of salt. But even if he sinned in those areas, it doesn't mean the things that he's saying about those categories are untrue in any way, shape or form. So I know presented all that great information for the first half hour. And then this is kind of a Debbie Downer thing before we let you guys go. But we got to be honest about where things are at. Again, I don't think there's going to be this big breaking news thing uh, where we see this evidence that's come through that proves anything. But at the same time, I don't think that we should be throwing anybody out their contributions to humanity based on their past deeds. Okay. All right, guys, before we go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So a few things for you today. I've got an article from the New York Times. Yes, I'm giving you a New York, New York Times article, but I thought they did a really good job on his obituary. Uh, so it's entitled Ravi Zacharias, preacher who used reason to defend faith dies at 74. So I've got that here for you. I've got a link to his podcast, Just Thinking. So basically anywhere where you get podcasts, I think there's a lot of different podcasts called Just Thinking. But if you type in your search bar, Just Thinking in R-Z-I-M, you'll be able to find it. Also, I've got an Amazon link to all of Ravi Zacharias's books. That's something that we didn't really talk about here in this podcast. I do have one of his books on our 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list, which is on our website. Just go to Undaunted dot life backslash book list. And then I've also got his uh, Sunday special discussion that he did with Ben Shapiro on the Ben Shapiro show. So if you didn't get that one, that is an incredible conversation between those two. So I highly recommend you give that a look. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. If you would subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us five stars and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for all of 2021. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, at your team, at your business, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. 
I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.